Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm happy to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can call in and ask questions or make a comment. Well, tonight's show is entitled, Why the New York Times is Wrong using basic genealogy tools and methods to show that your family name was not changed at Ellis Island. Well, my guest for tonight is Kenneth A. Bravo. And Ken received his JD from the Ohio State University College of Law and his BA degree in economics from Rutgers University. He is Vice President of the International Association of Jewish Genealogical Societies and the former President and current member of the Board of Trustees of the Jewish Genealogy Society of Cleveland. Ken has lectured on a number of genealogical topics, and this is, of course, one of many. So let me give a warm welcome to Ken Bravo to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Ken. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you this evening. A pleasure to have you, Ken. Now, before we get into the topic, just tell us how long have you been involved in genealogical research? I started somewhere oh, in the mid-1970s. As I recall, it was about the same time that uh, Alex Haley and Roots was on television, and there was a great deal of interest in genealogy and research at that time, and that's what kind of got me started. Oh, that's what got a lot of people started, I can tell you. <laughs> Definitely. Well, now, Ken, when we communicated back and forth about this particular topic, you provided something to me in writing of which you said that it's written that there's a common misconception, call it an old wives tale or an urban legend that family names were often changed at Ellis Island. So help us understand what you discovered 
to help debunk this myth. And more importantly, tell us about the New York Times article. Well, let me, let me take a step back, because when I lecture on, on genealogy, one of the things, and particularly when I le- lecture on Jewish genealogy, I have what I call the list of the ten, the Yiddish word is bubamaisa. And bubamaisa just translate basically as old wives' tale. And okay. number one on that list is our family name was changed at Ellis Island. So uh, it's something I've been talking about for a long time, and so in December of 2009, there was a, an obituary in the New York Times. And, and frankly, I, I enjoy reading New York Times obituaries because they're about very interesting people, either famous or infamous. Um, but they really go into a lot of detail on those people's lives. And on this particular day, there was a, an obituary about an individual named Saul Price, and Saul Price was the founder of the Price Club, which was mostly on the West Coast, but it's the forerunner of, of Costco today. So he is obviously was a very famous and very important person. And the New York Times wrote in their obituary that the original uh, family surname has been lost to time. It was changed prophetically to Price at Ellis Island. And when I saw that, my first reaction was, well, no, that's, that's not correct. It was not changed at Ellis Island. And so if, if you look generally on page two of the New York Times, just about every day, uh, they have a, a list of corrections to previous uh, articles, and they in, uh, have a, a, an email address that you can write to if you have any information to send them to tell them that there was some error, or you believe there was some error in their story. So I sent them what I thought was a very, very polite uh, email telling them I thought there was an error in their story, and I suggested some things they might do to look to uh, convince themselves that it wasn't just me giving them this information, but that there were scholarly articles out there and other materials that they could use to determine that in fact, what they had said was incorrect. And um, as I say, this was in December, and I waited, oh, probably probably about a month. And when I didn't hear anything, I got back in touch with the New York Times. I sent them an email telling them, you know, I was, was disappointed I hadn't heard from them, and um, I wanted to make sure they were working on this, and if there was anything I could do to help them, please let me know. And they wrote me back saying that they had not responded uh, because they had to research it extensively and they can't change anything unless they're 200% certain. So they certainly left me with the impression that they were doing more, more research on this. And I wrote them back and said, thank you very much. And I, at that point, gave them an email address of um, Marion Smith, who is a historian with what had been the Immigration Service. And then when the Immigration Service was moved into Homeland Security, uh, she moved over there, and she has written articles, very scholarly articles on this. So I sent them her email address so that they could check it out further if they wanted to. Um, but time went by and I didn't hear anything more. So 
I decided to do the research myself. Um, I can give you more details on that if you'd like, but I essentially did the research. I sent the New York Times the research that I found, uh, including Mr. Price's father's naturalization records. I showed them that his father came to this country as Susha Proust, um, and gave them copies of all of those records. Um, when I finally and heard back, long, so you, so you, you actually you went through the basic genealogical process of finding the correct information, and you sent them the information, and then what happened? Well, nothing. And so um, back in, then finally in April, I got back in touch with them. And that same day I re received a response from them or from one of their, their people who handles the obituaries who told me that he was not prepared to set aside decades of history to correct one specific family name. He suggested it might be something that the Metro staff might want to do a story about. He asked if he could give them my name and contact information to contact me. I said, sure, uh, and I've never heard from them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so take so. us through take us through where what you have been doing. Uh, lately, since you never heard from them, but let's say this is still happening, or is it well, still happening? Well, I, I, I frankly have not noticed it happening, at least I, I don't look every day through every obituary in the New York Times, but I have not seen it happening since then. And I would like to think uh, that maybe I sensitize them so that they're not going to do it in the future. Um, and I under, and I frankly, you know, I understand the problem that the New York Times had in this regard because the next thing I did is I went through, you know, the New York Times is available through many libraries um, and it's digitized so you can search it. So I searched for other obituaries in which people had mentioned that the family name was changed at Ellis Island and. Each, I took those, and I found, I think, four or five of them, and I went through those, and I was able to show, at least to my satisfaction, in each one of those, what the family name was when they came and landed at Ellis Island, and convinced myself that, you know, that, that I think could convince anybody else that the name was not changed at Ellis Island. Now, that's obviously not to say that names, particularly ethnic names, were not changed by families coming to the United States. Uh, there's lots of evidence of that. It just wasn't some, some clerk at Ellis Island who said, your name is going to be such and such. And, and so, um, and there's all kinds of stories about that and, and, um, they're just that. They're stories. <laughs> and well, they're but the thing stories. is, Ken, I mean, where did this come from in the first place? Because I've even heard it repeated, and it's coming from somewhere that people believe that there was a change that took place upon arrival at Ellis Island. 
Well, part of it is, and, and one of the things I, I, when I speak about this, I have a clip from the movie The Godfather, and it shows young Vito uh, arriving in, uh, at Ellis Island by himself. And uh, when he gets there, um, he's asked for his name, and he, he stands quietly and doesn't answer. And one of the other officials looks at the name tag he's wearing, and I believe it's Vito Antoloni, if I remember that, from Corleone. And so the um, the clerk who's writing it down purportedly says, "Oh, Vito Corleone," and from there on, he's Vito Corleone. That sort of thing lends, you know, leads people to believe that there that this was done. Um, Sometimes it's stories. Um, there's, there's a story um, of a Jewish individual who, whose name was supposedly Sean Ferguson. And mm-hmm. the story goes that when he was asked at Ellis Island uh, what his name was, he said in Yiddish, Shane Ferguson, meaning I forgot. And that the clerk wrote that down uh, to, um, uh, to be Sean Ferguson. Uh, there's a, a, a very well-regarded uh, genealogist um, who, is, who has researched that story and has found out that what happened was there was an individual whose last a Jewish individual whose last name was Ferguson, mm-hmm. and back in the 40s, late 40s, when Israel became a state, uh, he was a fundraiser for one of the organizations raising money for the state of Israel. And kind of to break the ice, he was an after-dinner speaker, to break the ice, he would tell the story, not true, but he made up this story about how his, when his grandfather came over, they gave him the name Sean Ferguson. And okay. People, people came to accept that, and there are, there are stories like that. Um, but it was, it was Gary Mokotov, who's a uh, publisher of genealog- Jewish genealogical books, uh, one of the he was in fact the founding president of the International Association of Jewish Genealogical Societies, and he's actually done the research to show where this Sean Ferguson story, uh, and and interviewed relatives of that family and tracked it down. So it's it's kind of like these you know urban myths we hear today, and and they kind of take on a life of their own, and and the name was changed at Ellis Island, takes on that kind of life of its own. Yes. Now, I understand that you you went through several cases. And so take us through the, uh, the genealogical processes you use. You know, just your basic genealogy tools sure. and methods to show us exactly how you uh, came up with the conclusion that this article was in no, no doubt it was definitely wrong. I mean, this just did not happen. Okay, well, let's, let's go back to the Saul Price obituary. That's the one that okay. started all this. Sure. And I, the, the, Saul, the, the Saul Price obituary indicated that Mr. Price was born in the Bronx on January 23, 1916, and he and his family moved to San Diego when he was a youth. Okay, well, at the time I was doing that, the 1940 census was not available because the census 
is not available for 72 years. It's not public. So I, I decided that since he was born in 1916, I would start with the 1920 and the 1930 census. And so I looked for, for uh, Saul Price or Solomon Price uh, in the 1920 census, and I found the family living uh, in New York. And that gave me a bunch of information about the family. It showed me uh, the father's name was Samuel Price. Uh, the mother's name was Bella. Um, there was a brother, uh, Henry. And, um, and then there was young Solomon. And I knew they had moved to California. I found them in the 1930 census in San Diego, the same individuals, uh, but they now had a younger sister named Evelyn. So I was pretty much convinced that I had the right family. Um, I also knew from the census information that the parents were naturalized uh, in 1916. So I began looking for uh, naturalization records. And when I found the naturalization records, um, one of the nice things about naturalization records, and what I've said very often, if I could only have one record on somebody, and if they were naturalized after 1906, and I'll tell you in a second why that's an important date, I would like the paperwork they, they filled out for their naturalization because it gives you names, dates, uh, dates of birth, places of birth, uh, tells you what ship they came over, when they, what port they left from, what port they arrived at, um, and just a lot of very basic biographic information. The reason 1906 is critical is because in 1906, the federal government took over the naturalization paperwork process. You could still be naturalized in state court, but there were uniform forms whether you were in federal court or in state court, there were uni uniform forms to use to do that. Before that, every court had its own paperwork, and very often there were very few, if any, questions that were recorded, or the answers were to which were recorded, when you were naturalized. So if somebody came after 1906 and, I could, and they were naturalized, that's the record I want. And that was the record that really gave me the most information on the Price family, that gave me the name of the ship. I mean, he also gave me the name under which he came in, but I could actually then go and look. Uh, and I did all of this on, on uh, a paid-for service, Ancestry.com, but I was able to find the ship manifest. And let me just add, on Ancestry.com, although it's a paid service, at least here in Ohio where I live, almost every public library has it for free, so you can go use it for free at the public library. Right, and they can also go to various family history centers around the country and use it for family free. Family history centers, you can do it at the National Archives itself. There's, there's a lot of ways to do it, but you, it would, you want to come to the same, you know, the same documents, and you, there's a number of ways to get to those same documents. Right, right. And that was the basic, basic thing I did for each one of these, pretty much, was I, I tried to find them in the census, um, 
keeping in mind that if you, it's a, it's a little different sometimes if you're doing somebody who has an obituary in the New York Times because by definition they were either famous or infamous. And so you're likely to find other stories about them um, in both the New York Times and in other major newspapers. So you can find out other information about them that may be helpful in doing this. I was able to do the Price family basically through um, census records, naturalization records, ship manifest, and then I did use one uh, death notice of his brother in a California newspaper just to confirm that I absolutely positively had the right family, but that was more icing on the cake than anything else. Right, and that was a basic a basic strategy. Uh, and I see Family Tree Girl, and she will sometimes say, "Well, so what? So so what? You didn't just stop with what was put in the uh, New York Times. You went back through the various processes, the name of the ship, as you said, the the uh, nineteen was it the nineteen sixteen naturalization record. Well, I I started with I the. The, natural, the uh, census records told me, and this isn't always accurate, but gave me an idea when they were naturalized. Yes. And then because I knew where they were living at the time they were naturalized. They were living in, in New York. And I knew they would be naturalized either in state court or in federal court. And so then it's just a question of tracking down the records for the state court or the federal court to find out... Um, where they've been naturalized, if it's if it's in federal court, those records are available. They're available from from ICE, the the Immigration and Customs people. But I find it easier to order them from the National Archives, and you can do that online. Um, you give them. You have to open an account. There's no charge for the account, but you have to have a password and a username and password. You give them a credit card number. You fill out a form for the information you want. If you if they find it, they bill your card ten dollars and send it to you. If they don't find it, they don't charge anything. I think that's a pretty good deal. That is a pretty good deal. Well, Ken, we're going to take a quick break and come back so that you could tell us about some of the other uh, cases that you looked into and to tell us if you did the same process or if you did something a little different. So a quick break, everyone, and we'll be right back.
Well, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 3, excuse me, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Sometimes I say three, but it's really nine, <laughs> where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Ken Bravo share his research on the New York Times was wrong. Your name was not changed at Ellis Island. I've also opened the phone line, so if any of you would like to call in and make a comment or ask a question, please feel free to do so by calling 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. So Ken, give us an idea of some of the other records that you looked into and then tell us the process that you went through. Okay, well, let, 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 me, let me give you another example, and this one was a little different, and I, I want to be careful here because there's somebody involved in this who I think may still be living, and I don't want to use her, her name. Uh, but I found an art, a letter to the editor in the New York Times, and the woman had written a letter to the editor saying, oh, how my family would have loved to inscribe the name of our uh, grandparents on the Ellis Island Wall of Honor. That had been a story that had been in the New York Times the previous day. And she goes on to say she doesn't know, and I'm paraphrasing here, exactly what her grandfather's name was uh, because um, the name that he used later in life, according to her, was assigned to him by the authorities at Ellis Island, uh, and he was known by that name for the next 50 years. And she then goes on to say, who changed it and why is it a mystery, a slip of the pen, a misheard response, a purposeful deception on the part of my grandfather. And she goes on to say, and she remember I told you there, there are a number of these, um, these, these old wives' tales um, about how the name was changed, and she gives some examples. She says, for example, the Josem family, for instance, whose ancestor was alleged to have claimed upon arrival that he was an orphan, a Yosem in Yiddish. Or the Fergusons, and that's the story I told you earlier about uh, uh, the Ferguson family. Um, or uh, somebody who was told, put your mark in this space, and thus became known as your mark. Um, and so I decided to research that and find out what I could about the woman who wrote the letter and about her grandfather. Um, so I started, I had no idea at that time if she was dead or alive, so I did a Google search on her. And I, I've got to say that one of my favorite genealogical research tools is Google, because I can find a lot on it. And I found out that she was a published author uh, she had written a book, and um, I used a site called anywho.com, and when I put in her name, 
uh, I pulled up her address and telephone number in New York City. So I decided to call her, and we had a very nice conversation. She indicated that she um, wanted to check with an older cousin of hers, I believe is what she said, and she would get back to me. I gave her my phone number and contact information. And when I didn't hear from her in a couple of weeks, I called her back, and she was still very nice, but she, she was a little reluctant to talk to me. She said she had spoken to, to relatives of hers, and um, they, they wanted to know why she was talking to somebody she didn't know and giving them personal information. And, you know, I, I invited her to Google me if she liked. She could find out that I was president of the Jewish Gene- uh, Genealogy Society of Cleveland, that before I retired I was an attorney working in a large law firm in Cleveland. But I didn't want to push it with her, so I decided I would just do the research on my own. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I started doing research and um, using some some websites that are out there. I was able to to put in her information and and get her date of birth. Um, and with her date of birth, um, I was able to do some some more research. Um, and I also found that the name of I did not know if he was living or deceased at the time, but the name of her husband. Um, so I started doing some research about him, and I did find uh, online, again on Ancestry Records, indicating that he had died and when he died. Um, and uh, did a search for his uh, death notice or obituary and pulled up... Um, an obituary on him that appeared in the New York Times, um, but it did not give me the maiden name of his wife. And of course, one of the sometimes frustrating things in doing uh, genealogical research is women, particularly um, years ago, uh, all tended to adopt their husband's name at marriage. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sometimes more difficult to find women because. And if they've married more than once, they may have changed their name more than once. Now, very often in an obituary, you'll see the wife's, uh, the, wi- the widow's maiden name in parentheses after her name, or sometimes women use it as their middle name. Unfortunately, in his, there wasn't any. So from there, I went and used uh, an obituary site online, and I looked for her name within the text of an obituary. Uh, and that brought me to uh, an obituary of her brother, which gave me a pretty good idea that I now had her maiden name. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I found his obituary, there was enough information there about the family that I knew I was pretty sure what her maiden name was at that point. Right. Now I went back looking for more information on her husband, and I found that he was listed in Who's Who in America. The uh, I live in Cleveland, the Cleveland Public Library online. You can check Who's Who in America. And when I checked Who's Who in America, I found an entry for him, 
And in that entry, I found that he had married this woman's full maiden name and the date of their marriage. So now I had pretty much confirmed that I had her maiden name. Uh, and now that I had her maiden name and I had her date of birth, which was 1926, I knew that she should be in the 1930 census. And so looking in the 1930 census, I found her. When I found her, obviously, I found her parents. And now I had to repeat the process all over again because now I needed her mother's maiden name in order to get to her grandfather. I knew what it should be because I knew what the name she had written in the um, in the letter to the editor was her grandfather's name. Okay. And using that took me back to um, to that name. I found records about that family, and now I had her grandfather's name. I had his family. I had knew who the other members of his family were from a combination of obituaries and census records. And I was able to track him back and ultimately found records regarding um, his naturalization, his ship manifest. And when I did that, uh, I found that he, he came in with the same last name that he was known by in this country. I also found very interesting his, his name could not have been changed at Ellis Island because he didn't land at Ellis Island. He landed a couple months before Ellis Island opened. So he landed, and after Castle Garden had closed, and they were using the battery then in, in New York um, to process immigrants. So A, his name was not changed, and B, he did not come in at Ellis Island. But that was the most complicated ones of the ones I did. Yes, it does sound like it's complicated. <laughs> and I probably but lost you somewhere along the way. <laughs> Right, right. But one of the things that uh, you are pointing out to everyone is that you do have to almost have a systematic process of searching. And once you identify one set of, of information, you have to keep going back and then kind of reconstructing the family all the way until you get to the naturalization uh, record to determine just what was the name Back, when they the first men. Yeah, one of the things I did for this family, I did a, a spreadsheet, um, and I found because I wanted to summarize the census information for 1900, 1910, 1920, and 1930. I would have done 1940 also, but 1940 wasn't available this time. And I listed in each for each one of those 10-year periods the address where they were, the names of the individuals in the family, and, um, and their ages, or in 1900, they gave you the month and the year of their birth. Uh, each, one, each one of those censuses lists the year of immigration, and it also lists whether they're an alien, whether they have first papers, or whether they're naturalized. And so using the, putting that spreadsheet in front of me, I could now see, and sometimes there are inconsistencies, but for example, when you find a naturalization record, one way you can verify you have the same person is by knowing how old they are, what their address is. So if you know in 1910 or 1920, for example, they were living at a certain address, and the naturalization application matches that address, 
now now you you know you got the right person and That's again, right. double, double double checking that with their age or their date of birth also helps pin it down. But did you encounter I mean, family members uh, insisting that the change did take place at the well, time I, they I, entered? I've had people, I mean, they don't argue, but they feel very strongly about it. I've spoken to groups and I've said, okay, now, if any of you believe that your family name was changed at Ellis Island and you know, two, three, five people will raise their hand and they are absolutely positively sure. And they're sure because this is a story that's been handed down in their family from their parents, from their grandparents, whoever, uh, you know, we're talking about events that very often took place over a hundred years ago. And it, it, it these things take on the appearance of fact, even though the data underlying it shows it's not it not to be true. Right, right. Well, we have a question coming out of the chat, and it's back to your spreadsheet. And I guess the question is when you're when you're talking about laying out this spreadsheet, the question is where did you put the census year on the x or the y axis? when you started pulling them all together? Well, I made. let me see if I can describe this. I mean, I used a standard Excel spreadsheet and I made one, two, I made five columns. And the first column I labeled census year. The second column I labeled address. The third was children, paren, age, close paren. The next was year of immigration and the next was citizenship. Then for each one of those, then I would then my next line down was 1900, and reading across was the address, and I under children I also included the adults. By the way, I probably didn't label this very well, um, but then I listed every person and whatever information I had about their age. Then the next line was the year of immigration, and that would be shown on the census, and then whatever the census showed about their citizenship. And there were there are three choices, alien, which would be A-L, papers, that is first papers, declaration of intent, which would be P-A, or naturalized, which would be N-A. And so I summarized that. So I could then look at this and see, kind of give me in one place on one sheet of paper everything I needed. I hope that answers the question. Okay, great. So give us a, some examples of some of the others that you um, you looked at. The others were all simple by compared to the one I just described. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and, and, the, and, and that one was complicated because I was going back a couple generations and because I had to determine the woman's maiden name and her mother's maiden name in order to get to her you know, maternal great-grandfather, um, which, which, which made it hard. Um, okay, well, you know, another one, uh, Zinn Arthur. Now, Zinn Arthur was a famous photographer um, in Hollywood, and then um, he became, and before World War II, he had been a, a big band leader, and he died in Los Angeles in 2003. And the New York Times obituary said, Mr. Arthur was born, and I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but 
Abrasha Chudisman on August 25th, 1912 in Ukraine. Um, the obituary goes on to mention that he formed his first big band in high school, shortening his name to Artie Zinn and later changed it to Zinn Arthur. Um, and um, it also says that his family fled the pogroms, arriving at Ellis Island in 1921, where his father changed their surname to Zinberg. And, you know, basically I did exactly the same thing. Um, it took me a little bit because there were some variations in the spelling of the name Chudisman. And the, the lesson to be learned here is I searched both the Ancestry site and I searched the Ellis Island site. And because I couldn't find them on the Ancestry site, and I found them on the Ellis Island site. And I can explain why that is if, if you'd like me to. Sure. Uh, I, had the, I had the same experience with my own maternal grandmother. Let me tell you my grandmother's story. Uh, my grandmother was Nadia Rubenstein, uh, with an R. She came to this country as a teenager by herself. Her parents were deceased, and she arrived at Ellis Island um, and then took a train to her brother in Dixon, Illinois. And I looked for a number of years when the Ellis Island site went online, I looked at the, and I looked and I could not find any variation of that name that came up on the Ellis Island site. And it was oh, probably four or five years after that that Ancestry put the Ellis Island uh, onto their website. Now, the way this works is the ship manifests are government records. So that's public, that's public information. The index Ellis Island had their own index done, and when Ancestry posted it, they had their own index done. And when I went to search on Ancestry, there was my my grandmother. And now that I knew the ship and when she arrived, I could work backwards through the Ellis Island site and find her. And what I determined was that somebody had read it was kind of a fancy script R at the beginning of her name, and somebody had read that as a B. So instead of Nadia Rubenstein, she was indexed as Nadia Bubenstein. And that's oh, pro okay. probably not a variation that I would have looked at, or not, or at least over a short period of time, I would not have looked at it. And so um, suddenly it was there. And so I had to go back and um, and figure it all out, but it, but it was all there. So it's just a question of, of, of finding it. So when I went to do this Chudisman, I ran into the same kind of thing um, because I, I was using one spelling and it was another spelling. And I probably could have found it ultimately on Ancestry, but I happened to find it quicker on... Um, uh, on uh, on Ellis on the Ellis Island site. Right now, was it just would you consider this an indexing error 
that they just transcribed it incorrectly. They looked at the aura and they thought it was a B and that's how they wrote it wrong. Was it actually? Go ahead. Don't don't forget in the early parts of the 1900s, these, these ship manifests were handwritten. And while some of these people have beautiful penmanship, sometimes it's so hard to read. And, um, so I, I, you know, there's certainly no ulterior motive here or anything like that. Some somebody who was index indexing it looked at it, saw the, le- the the initial letter, and thought it was a B. And of course, once it goes in there, um, it tends to stay in there until until somebody says something about it. That's so, right. So that's kind of how it happens. Um, but anyway, so. You know, I knew, I knew, to get back to Chudisman, Zimberg, um, I knew when they had arrived from the New York Times obituary. And so once I had them, I was able to narrow it down and come up with a ship manifest. Um, and, you know, that, that part was, was, was pretty easy. Um and led me then to um, to look at some census records and to find the family in the census. Um, and ultimately, I found um, a an index card on an Ancestry.com. And just think of this as a three by five card in a in a drawer, like you used to see in in libraries all the time. Uh, just an index card. But when somebody was naturalized. There would be this um, this index card prepared, and so I found um, the index card for Moses Zimberg, the father. And on that index card, it gives me the name of his um, children, and I see Abraham, age 15, in 1927, when Moses Zimberg was naturalized in the U.S. District Court, that's the federal court, in Brooklyn, New York. So at that time, I used something that was called footnote, which is now known as Fold 3. And again, I was able to use that for free at the public library here in Cleveland. And because they have the, um, the records for... Uh, the federal court in Brooklyn, New York, um, I was able to to pull up the um, the naturalization papers uh, for uh, the family and the name of the ship and the petition for naturalization and, and all of that. Um, now, the interesting part here is the parents were naturalized separately. And the reason for that is they came in 1921. In the mid-1920s, the naturalization laws were changed. Prior to the change, a woman's citizenship status depended on her husband's. If the husband was, was naturalized, she, was automat- she automatically became a citizen. The flip side of that was if the husband lost his citizenship for any reason, the the wife lost hers, including 
and I find this hard to believe, but I've read it enough times. If the woman was born in the United States, married somebody who was not a United States citizen, he became a United States citizen and lost his citizenship, she lost hers. Um, about the same time that women got the right to vote, the naturalization laws were changed. Mm-hmm. So women were not naturalized um, with their husbands. They had to be naturalized on their own. So I was also able to locate her uh, naturalization record. Um, and what I um, found was that um, enough to show me a, a cousin of the family, and uh, they'd all come as Judasmen. They had separately changed their name to Zinberg, and so they'd come at different times. So it, it, it would be impossible for the clerk at Ellis Island to change two people to the same name <laughs> who arrived at different times. Okay, now there's a, a there's a question here, and they want you to repeat what you said about losing citizenship. Ex- explain what you mean uh, when you what what you just said to us. Okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll try and do, let me do it one more time. Okay. Uh, before the mid 1920s, and I don't have the exact date at my fingertips. Uh, a woman's citizenship depended upon her husband's. So that if the male became a citizen, his wife automatically became a citizen. If the male husband lost his citizenship, the wife lost her citizenship. And even if the wife was born in the United States, so she was a United States citizen by birth, and for some reason, and she married, her husband became a citizen and applied for and got citizenship. If he lost his citizenship, she lost hers, even though she was born in this country. It doesn't I make sense. I'm not understanding well, it, uh, why would that happen? Well, why were women not allowed to vote? Why did women, why did women automatically, a woman's, you know, it doesn't make any sense to us in this day and age. But um, that's the, that was the law. That was the law. I mean, you, you can disagree with it, and I do, and I assume you do, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but, but that was the law. Now, again, as we all know, there was this big push for women's suffrage. Women in the mid-20s ultimately got the right to vote. And about the same time, I think there was a realization that this, this whole naturalization process that keyed a woman's citizenship status to that of her husband didn't make any sense. So after that time, family arrived, they would have the husband and the wife would have to apply separately to become citizens. Now, the good news for genealogists is that gal gives you two records to look at instead of one record to look at. That's right. So, so that so is some good news. <laughs> there, there is good news here, and fortunately, you know, almost 100 years ago, we changed the law. We, we, we gave women, as they were entitled to, the right to vote, 
and we gave them the right to be citizens in their own in their own and not rely upon their husband's status. Yes. So we we have made progress. <laughs> we have. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show. Do you want to give some summarization or some tools or some ideas that people need to keep in mind when they hear the words, the name was changed, your name was changed at Ellis Island. What do you need people to understand? Well, I think, I think you need to understand that the way to, to repudiate what is these, these old wives' tales is to get the facts. And the easiest way to get to the facts is is to do that kind of genealogical research that we do. Uh, and you do that by going back and looking at whatever records you can find. Now we are, you know, we're fortunate today. We have census records through 1940. So my suggestion is to start with the census records, you know, unless you happen to know when and where they were naturalized, which you can you can bypass that if you don't know. Start with the census records. Find out what it says about their when they arrived and what their citizenship status was. See if you can narrow down when they were naturalized. Find the naturalization records and go through those. Find the ship manifest. Now, understand. I say, you know, people change their names. I mean, that's 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 clear. But they change them for a variety of reasons. They 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 were sometimes difficult to pronounce. They changed them because of anti-Semitism. Uh, they simply got here, and some member of the family who was already here said, you know, we Americanized our name to such and such, and you just went along. We're also talking about a period in history when changing one's name was not difficult. You know, we live here in the, in the 21st century. We all carry a wallet. If our government-issued ID and our airline ticket don't match exactly, we can't get on the plane. Our ancestors 100 years ago didn't have all that paperwork. If you wanted to change your name or change the spelling of your name, you just changed it. It was no, no big deal. Um, and, and, and as far as the, the Jewish immigrants, many of whom came from Eastern Europe, if they could write their name at all, probably could not write it in the Roman alphabet. They wrote it in Yiddish, which is made up of Hebrew letters. And so... The name, as it's written in the Roman alphabet, is simply phonetic in any event. So if people say, my name is Friedman, F-R-E-E-D, and your name is Friedman, F-R-I-E-D, we can't be related, that doesn't make any sense. Because it, cause it's all phonetic at some point. So one branch of the family could change it one way, another branch of the family could change it another way. Okay. Well, thank you so much for clarifying, making it very clear that the names were not changed at Ellis Island, that people changed their names and not the folks at Ellis Island. And I want to thank you, Ken, for coming on tonight to well, share you, with Ken. us the genealogical strategies that you use to prove that you knew what you were talking about. Thank you well, very everyone, much for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Well, everyone, I want you to know that I will have a special show on Monday at 9 o'clock with Mary Tedesto. And Mary is coming on to discuss genealogy problem solving. 
So this is the time when we're going to talk about some brick wall challenges and we're going to have Mary Tedesco share with us what she has been doing. She She's one of the co-hosts of the Genealogy Road Show. And so it'll be interesting to, to hear what she has to say. So good evening, everyone. And I wanna thank Ken again for coming on. And remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And I look forward to you joining me on Monday night. Good night, everyone. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night.